Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, and as my listeners know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, like tonight, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in New York, about half of them, history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've talked about the history of African-Americans in New York, which go, who go back actually to the time of the Dutch. We've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored bicycles and cycling. They've been here for 200 years. We've delved into the history of punk and opera. We've looked at our public library systems. We actually have three of them in this great city, not one, not two, but three library systems. We've looked at some of our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're going to Brooklyn again. We visited a Brooklyn neighborhood last week, and we're visiting another Brooklyn neighborhood not too far from Flatbush. Tonight's show is about Bedford-Stuyvesant, or as it's also lovingly known by New Yorkers, Bed-Stuy. Our first guest is a returning guest to Rediscovering New York and our special consultant for the show, David Griffin. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York, is the only ongoing series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David's latest blog, Every Building on Fifth, documents every single building on Fifth Avenue. That's right, every single building from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River. His writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, how many times can I say a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York? It's always great to have you. Hope you're not unmuted. There you go. Hey, Jeff, how are you? It's good to uh, see you. <clears throat> and it's a real treat. That's two times today on Zoom. Right. <laughs> with another real estate-focused project that we're working on. Um, you're a regular on the show. Some of our listeners know you and some don't, but you have a fascinating background. Um, and I always like to talk about that from our guests. Uh, you're from the New York area, but not the city itself, at least not originally. No, I, I grew up uh, south of Port Jefferson on Long Island. Uh, and uh, myself and my three siblings were, uh, we then moved up to the Hudson River Valley when I was about 12 or so, and I've been in that area ever since. Hmm. You know, every, lately I've been going to and from uh, Eastern Long Island on the, on the Northern Parkway, the Northern State Parkway, and it says Old Bethpage, and to hear you talk about it, it's like, I got to do this sometime. I have yeah, to get on the yeah. highway and visit it when it's, uh, when it's open again. I don't know if they're uh, hosting tours. Um, how did you get interested in architectural history and, and in New York history in particular? 
Well, old Beth Page, as you've just mentioned, was a big part of that. My uh, siblings and I were the first children to be actually hired by New York State to serve as park interpreters. So we dressed up in the clothing of the 1860s period, since the village stops uh, around 1865 or so, right, right after the Civil War, actually. And we would demonstrate games and toys and other things of that time period. And we did that for the, uh, the village fair, which they held every year in October. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, sometimes we actually got to stay on site in one of the houses that had sort of bedroom spaces upstairs. And it was really sort of interesting to walk around these buildings and see them and just kind of think, you know, so many different people have lived here. How did the buildings come about? What are their histories? And I think that really sort of uh, propelled me towards an interest in architecture generally. <clears throat> There are not a lot of neighborhoods in New York that um, have have two words or two names as part of their name. Sometimes uh, they're associated with a thing like a hill or a slope. But um, Bedford-Stuyvesant is different. Um, how did Bed-Stuy get its name? Well, there was a village um, sort of named Bedford that was technically the owner of the area, if you will. Uh, and then Stuyvesant was the district that was the agricultural district near that hamlet. And the second name was derived from Peter Stuyvesant, who was, of course, the last governor of the colony of the New Netherlands. <laughs> you know, we usually associate the name Stuyvesant and Peter Stuyvesant with things in lower Manhattan. There's Stuyvesant Square, Stuyvesant this, Stuyvesant that. You don't come across a lot of Stuyvesant-related places outside Manhattan. Um, how did the name Stuyvesant end up coming to Brooklyn? Well, I think they just wanted to identify with the fact of, you know, of the, the Dutch governor. The, uh, the community was actually sort of founded um, during the time of his um, sort of reign, if you will. And uh, the Stuyvesant family actually was up and down the Hudson River Valley as well. So they weren't necessarily all concentrated in New York. There are, uh, there's a Stuyvesant town um, upstate uh, that's near the Hudson River Valley, uh, there are things named after the Stuyvesant family, you know, sort of throughout this area in New York State. So I think it was it was the name of the governor, but it was also, uh, you know, it was a surname and other people had it. Well, we know that Native peoples lived in the area before the Dutch came. And um, uh, from our conversation last week with Lucy Levine and Flatbush, um, they're pretty close together. Um, who were the first Dutch settlers in this part of Brooklyn? And, what did, and, and was there anything unusual about them? Well, um, the hamlet um, had its beginnings, of course, when a group of local residents decided to develop a market for their area. So they wanted a commercial center. And they petitioned the hamlet uh, to Governor Stuyvesant, which is one of the reasons why they named it after him. Um, a year it's later, hard to say no when they want to name it after you, right? Exactly. <laughs> Ironically, a year later, it probably would have had a different name because the British captured the New Netherlands and signaled the end of Dutch rule. So. It just squeaked in under the line, as it were. Um, we know that Bedford, the hamlet itself, had an inn as early as 1668. And it seems that in 1670, uh, there was a purchase of land from those people, from the Canarsie Indians as an additional area for common lands that were meant for grazing. And then the development of the market happened after that. Um, at the time of its earliest history, the the three um, major people were uh, three Dutch settlers, Dirk Hooland, and he operated a ferry boat on the East River. So uh, that's actually a distance away from uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant. 
Um, and then two other farmers, Jan Hansen and a man named Leffert Peterson van Hogwart. And the last one is a, a name that then occurs again throughout New York history, particularly in the 19th century. The Hogwart building is of that family. Uh, they were mercantilists and they developed um, a series of department stores. So they were doing very well for themselves. But those were the three first settlers in the area. So this is probably real getting down into the weeds, but um, most of the history of New York, when it comes to the local Lenape people, you hear about the Dutch uh, uh, exchanging things for use of the land. Um, you don't hear much where that actually happened in what became the city of New York after the English takeover, uh, because the uh, Canarsie Indians, you know, quote unquote, sold some of their land in what would become Bedford Stuyvesant in, uh, in 1670 under the English uh, under English rule. Huh. What what was life like in this part of Brooklyn during the century or so when we were in a British colony? It was basically agricultural. It was it was very rural. Um, there wasn't a, a great deal out there. Um, there was the inn. Uh, there was the market. There were farmhouses. But it really sort of stayed um, rural up until the latter part of the 19th century. So there wasn't a lot of development of the area up until then. Um, so it could have even been a town there, um, like until the time of the American Revolution. It just would have all been farmland. Pretty much. I mean, other than both a couple places to stay that I've mentioned and the, the place for market, that was about it. Is there anything significant that happened in the area that would become Bedford-Stuyvesant, David, during the American Revolution? Um, there was an important battle of Long Island that took place near the present historic district. And, and in that was, uh, let's see. 1776, I think, Lambert Sudam was the captain of the King's County Cavalry, uh, and he lived in what later became Bedford-Stuyvesant. Uh, it must have been quite a battle because it took until 1784 before the people of the town of Brooklyn could hold their first town meeting since 1776. Uh, so there was a little bit of a delay, I guess, in various political forms and move points. Well, moving into the 19th century, um, the history of this part of Brooklyn is also entwined with the with some local railroad history. Um, who was there? What was the railroad and how did it contribute to to the development of the area? Uh, the, the building of the Brooklyn and Jamaica Railroad took place in 1833 along Atlantic Avenue. And Bedford itself established a railroad station near the intersection of the current Atlantic Avenue and Franklin Avenues. And of course, we know that that railroad really kind of opened up an entire corridor of commercial and, in some cases, light industrial development through Brooklyn. So the coming of the railroad really began to herald, um, I think, you know, the sea changes that we saw see later on. And then uh, the subway, I think, shows up around 1908 or so. And that's when uh, you really start seeing apartment buildings and things of that nature going up, as well as the townhouses that have existed beforehand. Mm. Wasn't there a major uh, railway station that was built like in the 1830s along the line that, that also um, contributed to, to some additional building up of the area? This is before, you know, brownstones and before row houses. Yes, but, that was uh, the, one that I, the one that I mentioned in 1833. It would have been on Atlantic Avenue. So uh, the current section of Atlantic and Franklin Avenues, there was a, a railroad station. And that really kind of was a spur to commerce in the area. Well, one of the most significant things to me that happened um, in Brooklyn history before the Civil War 
was the settlement and establishment of Weeksville, um, a place where African-Americans could could establish homes and thrive. Do you want to talk about Weeksville and when it yes. uh, when it when it was born and, and what might have been different about Weeksville compared to other parts of Brooklyn? Well, it was founded in 1838, and it's been recognized as one of the first free African-American communities in the United States. Um, There is a community, I think, further up in the Hudson River Valley that was also founded around this time by African-Americans, freed African-Americans. It was a very picturesque rural hamlet. Um, There are some houses and homes that survive actually from that era. They discovered them sort of in the nick of time uh, through aerial photography, oddly enough. Um, The houses had been sort of, they were sort of behind other row houses and other buildings. And someone was flying over the place, I think in the 50s or so, and looked down and said, what is that clutch of buildings sort of in the the central area there? And they realized they had an intact community there from that very first time period. So I think it's about four or five buildings, and it's open as a museum village, much like old Bethpage. And it interprets free African-American life in the city prior to the Civil War, prior to the American Civil War. And it's really quite remarkable. You you wouldn't think that something like that could exist within the confines of New York City, particularly since a lot of Bedford Stuyvesant is quite urban in appearance. And this is really a kind of like a a little sort of a rural grace note of a little agricultural village. So I I strongly suggest people seeking it out. It has wonderful programming. Um, Of course, I imagine it's closed now due to the pandemic situation. Uh, but if you haven't been, it's definitely worth seeing. It's one of those places that you don't forget once you've seen it. And it's one of only two museum villages in um, New York City itself. There's another museum village, as everyone knows, in, in Staten Island called Richmond Restoration, which is somewhat similar. But Weeksville, I think, is unique in that I believe all of the houses are on their original foundations. So they didn't move any buildings there that I'm aware of, whereas um, the Richmond Town uh, Restoration, Richmond Restoration is buildings that were moved up from everywhere in Staten Island to form a a, a historic village. And how old are the oldest buildings in Weeksville? Are they they from the 1830s? 1830s, yes. There is one house there that is from the the late 1830s. And then I think there are buildings from the 1850s, 1870s period. Well, I'm, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, and I love the history of the city, and um, I have not been to Weeksville, not yet, but I will definitely uh, be visiting it as soon as we can do that. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin of Landmark Branding and our exploration, this show, of Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Hi, 
I am Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's seven o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. To Rediscovering New York. This is actually our 84th episode, and tonight we are visiting Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. My first guest is a regular on the show and the show's special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David, I want to ask you about Landmark Branding. When did you start Landmark Branding? You're not unmuted. All right. Okay. There you go. Um, I actually started it back in 2013. Uh, I had been writing some freelance work while working as an arts consultant. And in 2008, a lot of that dried up because of the economic downturn. And I thought, um, well, how can I continue to write about buildings and you know architecture of the city at large? And so I decided to go into marketing for real estate. And it's been uh, really quite an experience. I work with brokers. I work with developers. Uh, I work with people who are restoring buildings, uh, engineers and architects, interior designers, and people who simply own uh, and manage uh, historic or architecturally significant property. So I do everything from website text to uh, creating VIP tours and special events that highlight the architecture of certain things. And um, as you mentioned, my blog, Every Building on Fifth, that was really a lot of fun to write. It took a long time to do because I had to find time to photograph the buildings. And, um, and you I photographed started, every single building on Fifth Avenue? Every single building on Fifth Avenue wow. and has a, a capsule time history. And it starts with the Washington Square Arch and it goes on to the magnificent Art Deco uh, Harlem Armory, which is, I think, really sort of an overlooked masterpiece uh, in New York City architecture. And um, yeah, it's been it's really been a lot of fun. So I'm developing a potential book on uh, apartment architecture. I'm going to be thinking about a second blog, uh, potentially about Hudson River Valley architecture and villages, and uh, just moving along with um, wonderful programs like Rediscovering New York. And it's always great to have you. How did you come up with the idea for every building on Fifth? What was the genesis of it? What was? Uh, did you wake up in the middle of the night one night and say, "I got to do this"? Or uh, uh, I just was really, really sort of interested in the idea that here you have a, a a street that's famous around the world, and it's right there in front of you. And somehow it's it's sort of it has a walkability that I think a lot of very famous streets don't necessarily have. You know, a lot of other streets they they wind into this or that way, or their highways, or their, you know, eight lanes of traffic or something. And here you have a street that really is kind of a neighborhood street in a way. And I thought, I just want to see what is on Fifth Avenue. I want to see everything that's on Fifth Avenue, and I want a record of it, because it's changing. It's changing quite quite rapidly. Um, several of the buildings that I documented at the beginning of the blog, you know, three or four years ago are not there anymore. 
And then others have been restored. You know, they're still there, but they're, they've been kind of buffed up or they've been rebuilt or modified in some way. So I, I'm thinking that the blog as it stands will be sort of an interesting testament to the development of that corridor overall. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy that I did it and I'm planning to keep updating it as best I can. How many buildings are there on Fifth Avenue? There are, I believe it's something close to 530, 540 buildings on Fifth Avenue. Wow, wow. And a, a little trivia, do you know how long Fifth Avenue is? I don't, <laughs> but I'm just wondering how, uh, you know. I think it's about six miles long or so. It's, uh, uh. Someone said it's about half the, I should know that actually, but it's about, I think it's about half the length of Manhattan. Uh-huh. So, that doesn't start at the bottom, but I think it, it's I think it's about five or six miles. Hmm. Uh, have you ever walked the whole thing? Uh, not at the same all time? No. Not all of it's okay. Okay. Just just wondering. Well, that takes us back to Bed Stuy. Uh, when would Bed Stuy begin looking like the neighborhood that we see and recognize today? The real masonry row house development started as early as the eighteen seventies. But it wasn't really until the 1890s that you begin to see a lot of uh, development coming up. 1885, you see an acceleration uh, between that and 1900, and then sort of tapering off over the first decades of the 20th century. Um, at that point, uh, the construction of Mason Row House was basically for a community that was largely German. Uh, and it was emerging as very much a sort of an upper middle class neighborhood. The houses were quite substantial. Uh, they're four and five stories tall, some of them. They're they're wider than some of the earlier brownstones were, places like Fort Green or even Brooklyn Heights. And they tended to be very highly detailed. You have these sort of examples of the Italianate style uh, that are some of the earlier buildings, and they kind of echo the proportions and styles of buildings during the Civil War period. Uh, but then you see Romanesque revival houses, French Second Empire, uh, a lot of very good Queen Anne architecture, which is rather unusual for Brooklyn. There's not a great deal of that in Brooklyn. Um, some Beaux Arts, but um, other sort of Victorian eclectic styles, almost all of it keeping the general aesthetic of the brownstone building type, meaning that it's either faced with brownstone or it has brownstone trim involved, uh, regardless of whether the building is uh, of brick or some other type of stone. Um, they're really quite amazing, and um, Nostrand Avenue in particular, I think, is one of the most intact streetscapes of that time period, where you um, you have our uh, Hancock Avenue, actually is the one that I'm thinking of. Hancock is just block after block of these really amazing houses, and uh, they're really quite something to see. There's almost no missing gaps or modern construction on that particular stretch of Brooklyn. And uh, that's quite unusual for any neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, and it's you know, really quite, quite, quite a panoply. Well, $64,000 question. Why did that happen in Bed-Stuy and not neighborhoods immediately west and northwest like Clinton Hill, Fort Greene and Prospect Heights and Park Slope? What was it uh, about construction in Bed-Stuy that would have all these I you know, think great... It was, I think it was a certain um, group of people who were, they were merchants they expected to live a certain way. They, you know, I, I think they were sort of building for the clientele, if you will. So, you know, the people in Fort Greene were very prosperous, but they might not have been quite as moneyed. Uh, people in Brooklyn Heights, that's an older neighborhood, and it's perhaps more, quote unquote, aristocratic, but people weren't as opulent back then as they were in a place like Bedford-Stuyvesant. 
The place where you see similar buildings uh, to a large degree is actually Park Slope, which was being developed at the same time. And even there, I think, um, I think that the architecture in Bed-Stuy is a little bit more freewheeling. It's a little bit more eclectic. Um, and sometimes that just goes down to the fact that these people were maybe what we would call, quote unquote, the nouveau riche. So they, they didn't mind sort of being a bit more flamboyant about it and having a house that was more unusual. Mm. Well, let's move on to the 20th century. Um, what has Bed-Stuy's development been like since we started the 20th century and after the, after the First World War? Well, during the 1930s, we were in the Great Depression, of course, and major changes started taking place. Uh, there was a wave of immigration during that period from the American South and also from the Caribbean. And so that brought the neighborhood's Black population up to where there were about 30,000 people who were African-American in that district. And it was suddenly the second largest Black community in the city at the time after Harlem. Um, during World War II, the Brooklyn Navy Yard attracted other Black New Yorkers to the neighborhood for an opportunity for employment. And the war economy was sort of creating these kind of fluctuations in suburban development. So a lot of the people who were of the, the first wave of sort of Polish and German arrivals were moving further out into the suburbs. But Bedford-Stuyvesant was, it was a very well-to-do district during that time period that it was prosperous. And uh, it's sort of funny that Harlem, I think, is better known in African-American history because it had the entertainment zone. It had the theaters. It had the great music spots and things like that. And Bed-Stuy had less of that. There weren't as many places for people to congregate, but it was very much considered a neighborhood of, as someone put it, you know, uh, a, a place of homes and churches. So Harlem, I think, was a little bit more sort of intellectual razzle-dazzle, and it was about celebrity. And I think Bed-Stuy was sort of the more respectable, more staid side of the African-American middle class during that time. It was interesting reading today that uh, one of the things that contributed to Bed-Stuy becoming a home to a greater number of African-Americans was actually the opening with the extension of the A-Train that we call the A-Train now yes. uh, to the on the IND line out to Rockaway. And um, the, um, the song Take the A-Train yeah. is supposedly about leaving Bed-Stuy to go to Harlem, like going out for a night on the town and going up to the theater district. That everyone, by the way, was by the famous Duke, Duke Ellington. Yes. Uh, Great. Was in the, yes, yes. And he was with us till I think, 1975. That was in high school when he died. Really? Um, yes. Yes, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little older than you are. I, um, I, I just, I guess I didn't know that he had lived until the 1970s. But Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually remember news coverage of his funeral. I didn't go to his funeral, but, but you know, uh, when he was uh, of, of his wake in Harlem. Um there's a now the moving into the 60s there's a there's a dark side to Bedstuy's history that was aided and abetted by some unscrupulous business people what happened in Bedford Stuyvesant in the 60s well there was an illegal uh it is now an illegal practice and um it's something that's really i think um you know part of a a, a very negative history in New York and other cities around the country uh real estate agents and speculators employed what they called blockbusting to turn a profit, where they would go in and sort of encourage people who are white to sell their homes, turn around, sell them to African-American buyers, and then go to the next white household and say, oh my gosh, the African-Americans are moving in, you got to move out fast. So they were getting the homes for less than they were valued, 
And then they were pumping up the price to the people who were moving in. And they were creating this kind of feeling of racial division, which might not have happened if it had just occurred as a natural process with more and more people moving into the area. So um, by 1960, about 85% of the population of Bed-Stuyvesant was black. And in the early 1960s, there was one of the first urban riots in the area. And that was due to you know, the social and racial divisions that the city was experiencing. Uh, but also relations between the New York Police Department at the time were very strained because the perception was the New York Police Department, they were oppressive, uh, that they were racially biased. And there were also very, very few black policemen or, you know, people working in the police department who were African-American. It was sort of like one of these, these things where they didn't have community representation at that level. And that's incredibly difficult to deal with. So... Um, there were a number of activists and politicians, such as, such as civil court judge Thomas Jones, and a number of grassroots organizations, community members within the community and Bedford Stuyvesant, um, who were formed and began to kind of rebuild Bed Stuy as, as sort of a, a more stable neighborhood environment. Um, there was a, in 1965, Andrew Cooper was a journalist from Bedford Stuyvesant, and he brought a lawsuit under the Voting Rights Act against racial gerrymandering under the grounds that Bedford-Stuyvesant was divided among five congressional districts, and each had a white representative. So it resulted in the creation of New York's 12th congressional district and the election in 1968 of Shirley Chisholm, who was the first black woman and West Indian American ever elected to the US Congress. So that was really a historic moment for American politics that was generated entirely out of Bedford-Stuyvesant. So it really, it, it has an incredible political history in addition to, you know, the architecture and the social history of. Uh, the yes, and Shirley Chisholm hem- heralded a lot of changes into Congress and uh, she's a great lady in our, in our, in our system. Um, we have about a minute left, David. I want to talk about the gentrification in Bed-Stuy. Um, a lot of gentrification displaces longtime neighborhood residents and that rapid change can lead to the decline of culturally rich and diverse neighborhoods. But it didn't quite happen on that scale in Bed-Stuy. Why not? What was one of, one of the things that really um, uh, separated Bed-Stuy from some of this wholesale gentrification? Well, I think that your next guest will probably be able to speak much more on point to that than I can. But from what I've read, it does seem that one of the things that is um, interesting is that Bed-Stuy continues to attract new people who are African-American or who are of African ancestry. And they identify with the history of the region. And, you know, they're professionals that are coming in and they're restoring some of the beautiful old houses and opening up businesses and restaurants and things of that nature. And I think it's seen as um, maybe a little bit more of a historical and cultural destination in that sense. But, um, yeah, the gentrification is continuing in Bed-Stuy. Even under the current pandemic, it's continuing. Um, it's interesting that Seven Arlington Place, which was the setting for Spike Lee's 1994 film Crooklyn, uh, actually sold over its asking price in 2013 at $1.7 million. So uh, I think Bed-Stuy has seen again uh, the way it was when it was first built as a place of very desirable properties. Um, it has you know excellent access, of course, to the subways. And it's sort of in the heart of Brownstone, Brooklyn, but it's very much sort of also set apart in a way that I think there's still a lot of privacy and quiet. You're not getting the tourist hordes. You're not getting people who are just kind of, you know, buzzing through as it were. 
it, it, it's one of the few neighborhoods in Brooklyn where the people who live there actually had a hand in its gentrification and it's becoming better as a neighborhood. Um, sort of like the low point in the 60s led to homegrown improvements in a sense of community that still exists in Bed-Stuy today. David Griffin, thank you so much for being our first guest on this program about Bedford-Stuyvesant. And our first guest has been David Griffin. David is the founder of Landmark Branding and also the show's special consultant. Um, looking forward to having you back on the show. Well, we see you next, David. Thanks so much for, for being on the show today. Thanks a lot. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to speak to our second guest, who can speak a little bit more recently about happenings in Bed-Stuy. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. you a conscious co-creator are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness i'm sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant and on my show the conscious consultant hour awakening humanity we will touch upon all these topics and more listen live at our new time on thursdays at 12 noon eastern time that's the conscious consultant hour awakening humanity thursdays 12 noon on talkradio.nyc curious person always asking questions do you desire to be in the know then join me antonia host of so now you know thursdays at 5 p.m at talkradio.nyc listen in as i attempt to satisfy that curiosity i will be talking with amazing everyday people join the fun so now you know on thursdays at 5 p.m at talkradio.nyc You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. And you are back to Rediscovering New York. Support from the program comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, (laughs) estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 495-0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Brown Harris Stevens. 
Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear him on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our second guest on the show is a special guest, Medina Sadiq. Since the mid-1980s, Medina has dedicated herself to social and economic justice. She holds a Juris Doctorate degree conferred by Northeastern University School of Law. Prior to attending law school, Ms. Sadiq worked as a project officer at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, where she was assigned to work throughout Region 2, which includes Puerto Rico. She was the recipient of the Muscle Mind Award in 2018 from Columbia for providing the legal assistance in the development of more mosques in New York City than any other attorney. Medina founded a Better Bronx for Youth Consortium that provided technical assistance and made grants to organizations that might otherwise not have such, such access. After developing programs that reached thousands of Bronx youth, Ms. Sadiq went on to serve as the CEO of a community-based security service with over 700 employees. Medina later spent time in the Caribbean, where she honed her craft in the area of economic development and commercial revitalization. She worked in St. Martin, Anguilla, Jamaica, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico. She is especially proud of bringing together entrepreneurs from various Caribbean island nations to develop joint business ventures. In 2005, she received the Madame C.J. Walker Business Woman of the Year Award. She has since committed to passing that award forward and presenting it to several businesses in the Bedford-Stuyvesant community in 2018. Ms. Sadiq became the Chief Executive Officer and the Executive Director of the Bedford-Stuyvesant Gateway Business Improvement District in February 2017, and I can't imagine a better guest for the second part of the show than Medina Sadiq. Medina, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're a native New Yorker. You're from New York originally. Where are you from in the city? I'm born and raised in Harlem. I went to elementary schools in Harlem um, and actually graduated from high school in Harlem. Well, Medina, you have a level of accomplishment and education that most executive directors of business improvement districts don't have and may only be able to dream of. And I'm not just talking about your law degree. There are a number of, of bid directors who have law degrees. But um, uh, let's let's talk about your JD. When you studied law, was was your career path going to be the law? No, no, never. No. I never intended to be a lawyer. I never thought of myself, um, certainly not as a litigating attorney. Um, I got the opportunity to go to law school and I thought that it would help me um, to help people in, in my communities around public health. We were in the, you know, this is before Clinton and we were working um, with Mrs. Clinton around, uh, you know, manage care for people everywhere to be able to get public health access to health. And so, um, yeah, I, I did not think I'd be in courthouses ever. No. 
this being a show about New York, we have the proverbial sirens uh, that we can hear in the I'm background. So, so sorry there. No, Always no, there. it's great. <laughs> it's a Always real New York there. show. We do. We have yeah. sirens all the time. It's good to provide a little bit of, you know, if it were if if it were on stage, we would have uh, we would have someone with that sound effect in the, in the wings. Um, when did you work with the with the Centers for Disease Control, and what led you to working with the with the Centers for? You Disease know, Control? it was so crazy. I. I was running um, a teen pregnancy prevention program in the Bronx and um, I just I, off a fluke applied for a job um, in, in Washington, D.C. around prevention of HIV for women. And so that was an exciting project. Um, we were at that time funded by the Centers for Disease Control and the CDC recruited me and invited me to come work for them, um, managing prevention projects for women and really they were for everybody, but I ended up focusing on women's health um, around HIV. And you know, when you deal with HIV, you end up dealing with everything, you know, all of the pre-existing conditions of your life um, come into focus when you get an HIV diagnosis. And so, um, that was some exciting work, but it wasn't, I was really just looking at making things better for women and ended up at CDC. Mm. Well, in a departure of that, you, but not from your, your, your activism and your support, um, you got involved with helping mosques to establish. How, how did you get involved with, with that project? You know, I set up a consulting business um, to help nonprofits that that really didn't have access to um, support around their businesses, support around um, starting nonprofits, fundraising, and things of that nature, governance. And, you know, I'm Muslim. I had been around a lot of Muslim business owners. And I said, well, let me see if I could help some business owners. And in helping the business owners, we realized that mosque are business too, that they have to be incorporated. They have to be... Um, they need a board of directors as well. And so, yeah, I got involved with it that way too. What was your inspiration behind founding a Better Bronx for Youth Consortium? When I came back to New York um, after working for the Centers for Disease Control and seeing how many nonprofit organizations existed in New York City in of color communities where um, people did not have access to foundations and to, to corporations that were making large grants. And, and part of the government was even ignoring some of these communities. And so I felt like I had access to, um, to government pots of money, not access in that they were mine, but that I knew how to reach people. I could bring attention to the community. Um, and so I started this nonprofit whose mission was to bring funds to nonprofits that served young people in the Bronx, because we were, I believed at that time, very much ignored in that community. Mm. Medina, how did you get involved with economic development in the Caribbean? You've done so much. I feel like I'm, this is like a job interview. I'm just asking you about <laughs> I know, all, I'm the, overwhelmed. All, the, all the amazing stuff that you've done. Um, well, in the Caribbean, I just was asked as an attorney to support some property owners that um, were trying to 
um, get financing to build hotels. So there were, and these people exist all over the world, not just in Jamaica, but in Jamaica, there were these people that owned property um, on beachfronts, right? That did not, that where they didn't have proof of their ownership of the land. So it's called untitled lands. And a lot of times um, you'll find that even here in the United States, where there are pieces of land that maybe have not, are left without, proof of ownership. And so when I went to do that work, I met the ambassador, the, the Jamaican ambassador to, um, to, to, to Cuba, his name was Carlisle Dunkley. And um, he said to me, well, you know, you speak Spanish as a first language, you understand these issues, would you come with me to Cuba to try to attract other islanders, um, other business people to come to Cuba and invest? And I started working on that project with him, which was also awesome. Awesome. Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It, it's going to sound like a stupid question. Was there enough free enterprise in Cuba to have fostered the need for the kind of economic development and commercial revitalization that's that's really been a hallmark of your career? Well, you know, that's where I learned how to do it. I learned how to make something with nothing. And what I learned there was that, you know, um, even in my own childhood, we knew how to make fish cakes with potatoes. I mean, you know, so so in Cuba, where you, you're starting off at, at maybe what appears to be zero, you're forced to be tremendously creative as we are now in this pandemic. We are forced to go back to zero and be creative. Mm. Wow. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Medina Sadiq. She's the executive director of the Bedford-Stuyvesant Gateway Business Improvement District. And we will be talking about Bed-Stuy again on the other side of the break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. 
You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York and our episode on Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. My second guest is Medina Sadiq. Medina is the executive director of the Bedsty Gateway Business Improvement District. And speaking of business improvement districts, where uh, we've been journeying through your, your career, and now that lands us at the bid in Bed-Stuy. Um, how did you get involved with business improvement districts? You know, once again, you know, our communities are based on relationships and people knowing what other people know how to do. Um, Dr. Richard Izquierdo, a prominent community activist and medical doctor uh, in, in, in the Bronx who recently passed away, he asked me, you know, he invited me to work on a small bid in the Bronx that was being started, Southern Boulevard Business Improvement District in 2008. And I was doing it, you know, as a consultant, and I never thought of it as, you know, I didn't know how intricate the work of a bid could be, that it was a specific type of nonprofit, you know, that it has a quasi-governmental type of um, mission. And, um, And so once I got involved with it, I fell in love with the work. I love the ownership of the community and being responsible um, for the community in a way that is above the regular responsibility that we have. So that a bit is like a, an experiment in social responsibility where property owners take care of their property, of course, but they pay an extra assessment, an extra tax to be in a particular area to get some additional services, like additional street sweeping, more than what the Department of Sanitation would give. And so I found it to be very exciting. And um, and so I've been doing big work now since 2008. Medina, mm. were there any special challenges that you faced when you took over the leadership of the bid in Bed-Stuy? Um, of course there were. Um, of course there were. I think um, that bids are interesting. Bids are very interesting in that um, there are very few Black women bid directors. Um, There are very few Black people bid directors in New York City, very few. We have um, almost 80 bids, and if there are five African-American bid directors, I would be surprised. And so, although Bed-Stuy is known to be a Black community and always had Black bid directors, I think being female was um, a challenge in the community. I think it was a challenge in the community. Um, uh, And I think coming from outside of the community was a challenge. It's a very insulated community. Um, And a lot of things have happened that caused for distrust of outsiders. And so Mm. that took a while. Were there any special initiatives that you undertook with with the Bed-Stuy bid? For me, you know, um, you know, Bed-Stuy, of course, you know, this whole issue of gentrification, 
um, is delicate. And, ha- and I think my vision of, uh, of gentrification is that it's not about, it's not, the problem is not that new people are coming in. The problem right now in Bed-Stuy about the new people is that they come in with access and with um, ability to, to, to get more uh, income, to redo their buildings, to redo their sidewalks. There's that feeling like, why do these new people have more than we do? Why are they able to get the city to respond to them better than us? And so you do have that conflict. And um, throughout the pandemic, I was doing a study funded by the New York Urban League to look at the impact of of gentrification in our commercial district. Hmm. Well, that brings us to the feeling and the vibe of Bed-Stuy. Describe the vibe of Bed-Stuy, Bedina. What is it that you like about it? I love it. I feel like even when there's no music, it feels like there's music playing in Bed-Stuy. Um, it's rhythmic. It's, it reminds me of the feeling that you get when you're in Cuba, that the culture is screaming off of everything. It's in the clothing, it's in the buildings, it's in the food, it's in the, the way people express themselves. And what's unique about Bed-Stuy is that even in the institutions, even in the the the, 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 the hospital there, the, the banks, Chase, Citibank, the people who work there are mostly African-American. Um, and so there, there is, it's a community that one like it doesn't exist any place anywhere near. So it's very, it's unique. Um, uh, and, 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 and there is a sense of, of home, I think, for just about any African-American in the country that comes there, there is that feeling of home. Um, and so I think it's it's unique, but it still has its problems and needs to be maintained and and and, and better taken care of. Mm. Well, you've worked in different communities and, and neighborhoods around the city. Is there anything that you feel that makes Bed Stuy unique compared to other neighborhoods? Well, of course, the population, but the architecture. You could spend your whole I mean, you could spend months just walking up and down the streets looking at the buildings. They are so beautiful um, and inviting, even if they're not in their best condition. They are beautiful. And so that is something that is soothing, even in a rough day, in a rough time, the, the architecture is just really beautiful. A little bit of a trick question. I've asked this sometimes. Is there anything that, that surprises you or recently surprised you about Bed-Stuy as a neighborhood? Yes. Well, actually, yes. The fact that we have a Black Lives Matter mural in Bed-Stuy for over three months, um, where I feel, and I'm going to say publicly, I feel that, you know, it's it came from outside. The, the movement, though it belongs to everybody throughout the country, came from outside and it's kind of planted itself in Bed-Stuy. And I'm very surprised at the residents and the leadership of in the community that they haven't addressed it in a more aggressive way that we have a street closure for almost four months um, where people complain and have not taken further action. And that's been very surprising for me. Mm. Well, someone who's involved in the business community in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Medina, um, is there and and see businesses that 
want to succeed and maybe complement each other. Um, is there anything that you wish were in bed right now that's not? That may be a signal to someone thinking about uh, with an idea of opening up a business? Mm, we have so many beautiful um, independently owned businesses that I think we could take some more national chains. We could take a little bit of variety from the national chains. Mm. Yeah. Because most of our stores are independently owned. Is there any special advice that you would have for someone and maybe even a small business owner, not like, you know, um, uh, someone sitting behind a desk at a national chain. If someone were thinking about opening up a business in bed what advice would you have for them? The same advice that I would have for anybody right now getting ready to open a business, and that's to do, do a serious business plan. Before you get into the business, a lot of times in bed what you see is passion. So people open businesses because of their passion. And I invite people to really do good business plans to go alongside of their passion. If someone wanted to contact you um, just to bounce ideas off of you or seek you out as a resource, how could they do that? They could go to the uh, Bedsty Gateway Bids website, which is um, www.thebedstybid.org. With a V on the front of it. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, bed right. And for everybody, bed is B E D S T U Y, short shortened for Stuyvesant. Great. Well, Medina Sadiq, thank you so much for being a guest thank on you. our program. It was great to meet you, and uh, I hope uh, we can actually meet face to face one day instead one of just looking at each other through these uh, through the cameras and the miracles of technology. Thank you. Well, everyone, we've just finished this week's journey. We've been visiting Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. Our guests have been David Griffin, the special consultant of the show, and Medina Sadiq, the executive director of the Bedside Gateway Business Improvement District. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the Law Offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, including in Bedford-Stuyvesant, you can reach us at 646 306 Four seven six one. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, our first guest tonight. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. 
We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 